So as I'm sure you all know, this is the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. It promises to be a very interesting session. I'm going to start with uh, a couple of clerical notes here. Uh, first of all, I'd like to remind everybody, if you have any noise-making devices, cell phones and the like, please do turn those off right away. Um, now, uh, I want to remind everyone as well, and in particular, uh, those of us who might want to check this out later or anybody who has uh, questions they'd like to ask that this session is being recorded, so do keep that in mind. Um, now, uh, lunch today is $10, and there are baskets on your table, so uh, please do uh, throw your 10 bucks in there and choose someone at your table uh, to count out the money, and it'll uh, be collected shortly thereafter. Um, now, uh, we are uh, here to witness a uh, nonprofit volunteer-run organization, the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, and the good work that they do in bringing uh, very interesting uh, politically-minded speakers to Lethbridge. So I want to thank SACPA for all the great work that they do. I'd also like to thank the uh, University of Lethbridge uh, for financial support and for spreading the word about these talks, uh, as well as uh, Shaw TV and the Lethbridge Herald and all the other media who come out here and provide great coverage of these events. And finally, Country Kitchen Cater for uh, providing us with the lovely lunch that you'll have in about a half hour here. Now, we are going to proceed, as usual, with a uh, 25 to 30-minute talk, and that will be followed by uh, lunch and a question period after that, finishing at about 1.30. Now, uh, if I seem a little bit tired today, it's because the nights have been long, and the reason for that is that I'm currently preparing uh, about a 40-page paper to uh, hand in to our speaker and his colleague, Harold Jansen, uh, <laughs> so you'll have to forgive me for that. Uh, now, many of you who have been following politics in Lethbridge for some time will be aware of Peter McCormick and the work that he has done. Uh, he is a political scientist at the University of Lethbridge, uh, is very well-respected and well-published in uh, a couple of different fields, and is recognized as a top expert on Canadian constitutional law. He is somebody who, uh, evidently, from the way that he uh, speaks in the classroom and to the media, uh, is somebody who very much cares about what he does, about politics and about teaching politics. Uh, and so I am uh, excited to hear the very, very lively commentary that he likes to give on Alberta politics. You can hear it often in various uh, media venues, including on the CBC as a regular contributor and in many local and national media outlets. So without any further ado, we will welcome Dr. Peter McCormick, who is going to be talking to us about is Alberta about to witness a generational shift in provincial politics? Okay, well, I'll start with an apology, which is never a, a good sign, but I, the whole last week I've been fighting off a horrendous cold, so uh, try to stay away from me. If I breathe on you, you're in trouble. Um, and if my voice starts to, to go partway through, I will yeah, press on as best I can. Okay, uh, obviously, uh, certainly been an interesting month or so in, in Alberta politics, and this is a province where we don't often get much of particular interest in, in provincial politics. Uh, it's mo uh, more twists and turns and unexpected things than we normally get in a full year. Uh, some events that didn't just surprise us as outsiders, but actually surprised the insiders as well, which is which is more unusual. We had a premier stepping down. We had a leader of the opposition stepping down. 
and now we've had three of the uh, most important members of the provincial cabinet resigning to run for the leadership. It's good stuff. Enjoy it. Try not to worry about who's minding the store in the meantime. But uh, first of all, before getting into what's happening, I want to say a bit about what's not happening. We shouldn't get too carried away. The first thing we need to remind ourselves is that the Conservative Party of Alberta is not disintegrating. It's not falling into little tiny pieces that will be swept from the stage by the, the next uh, political party to come sweeping in at the next election. That's not the most likely outcome by any means. What you're seeing instead is the Conservative Party starting to dig itself out of a rather deep hole. Um, the, I mean, they dug themselves into the hole in the first place, not a good move, but I think what we're seeing now is the, the party beginning to recover from that, and it's doing so in pretty good order, all considered. Now, I think we can agree, um, including the loyal Conservatives among us, and I will not ask for a show of hands, but the uh, Conservative Party made something of a mistake when they picked Ed Stalmack as their leader four years ago. Um, he was so determined to prove himself a new leader with new ideas that he tackled the royalty issue, which uh, is the electric third rail of Alberta politics, and he promptly discovered why even Ralph Klein wouldn't touch that one. Uh, and it ended with uh, an abject surrender and retreat of a magnitude you don't often see in politics. You don't often see majority premiers beaten up so badly. The historic metaphor for those who study history, it's the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa standing in the snows of Canossa waiting to apologize to the Pope. Well, that's roughly the equivalent of what we saw at Stalmack doing. At least he didn't have to stand in the snow for three days, but everything else is on a par. Um, and then um, after that mistake, I don't think he put his mark on much of anything. It's really been momentum politics, more of the same, carrying on what went before. In the age of communication, and never has communication been more important than it is now, he's the premier who can't communicate. He proved completely unable to communicate. I'm sure none of us will ever forget the glorious televised leaders debate uh, that preceded his landslide election, although put those two together, it's a bit... Okay, uh, whatever, that, was, that must be the most inept performance ever by a leader who went on to win an election. Uh, it's it's got to stand for all time as that. Uh, and then he tried, uh, I don't know how many of you checked it out, he, uh, uh, on YouTube he tried a, an Ask Premier Ed series where, where people called in questions and then he answered them earnestly, sincerely at some length. Uh, it was a better exercise than the leadership debate, certainly, but it... Again, not great television, not great communication. And his first cabinet was something I still refer to as the Revenge of the Northern Farm Boys. Um, and it was uh, so pronounced that it, uh, it provoked an outcry in Calgary, which used to be the conservative solid home base that they could count on even if nobody else voted for them. And then finally, watching him and Ron Liepert lead us through the swine flu pandemic scare has got to be the Keystone Cops episode of recent politics. It was, you know, every morning you change your mind, and up until noon you're contradicting each other. It was just absolutely magnificent. We're sure lucky that wasn't a real pandemic flu, because we've lost a lot of Albertans if it had been. And the only time Ed Stalmack is ever decisive is when somebody in his caucus criticizes him. He's awfully good at throwing them out of caucus. That's, that's leadership. That's about... Um, so uh, most of us would say uh, Ed Stalmack is a nice guy out of his depth. I think a lot of members of his caucus would question the nice guy part. Now, Daniel Smith built the Wild Rose Alliance on the outrage of the oil patch, a con you know, a f an unforced error that Stalmack didn't have to make. 
And then the bitterness of an apparently neglected city of Calgary, another unforced error that Stelmach didn't have to make, and then capitalized again on the huge record deficit of last year uh, that the Stelmach government had to rack up to respond to the uh, international fiscal crisis. So there's no question about it. The best thing the Wild Rose Alliance had going for it was Ed Stelmach. And uh, the saddest person in the province the day that Stelmach said he was stepping down was Danielle Smith. It was, darn, there's our secret weapon. Now we have to do it on our own. Um, whatever the alliance's realistic hopes are for the next election, I'm not absolutely sure what the numbers are. Stelmach made them a good bit better just by being there. So his voluntary exit is bad news for the alliance. Therefore, by logical extension, it's very good news for the conservatives. Their future is looking a lot brighter. It's an old maxim in politics, not necessarily true, but it's a starting point. Oppositions don't win elections, governments have to lose them. The conservatives are no longer cooperating the way they were until recently. On the other hand, having trashed Ed Stelmach, which we all do, it's the new Alberta hobby, uh, you have to give Ed Stelmach some credit. Uh, from the absolute nadir of party fortunes about a year ago, he regained the initiative, first of all, with a largely cosmetic but nonetheless very adroit cabinet shuffle with two brilliant moves in it. Number one, instead of uh, stumbling Ron Liepert, the nasty guy in health, you bring in smiling Gene Zwadeski, who's nothing, to, you know, nothing but nice things to say for a whole year. And then you put Ted Morton in finance. Again, a brilliant move. If we'd been naming cabinet minister most likely to defect to the new Wild Rose Alliance, it was Ted Morton. So you make him minister of finance. It's absolutely splendid. And you make him introduce the budget that was already written. But he, just brilliant. Absolutely wonderful stuff. It, again, it's the other old maxim in politics, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. And Ted Morton as finance minister certainly qualifies for that. Um, then a, a month ago, you, you would have said, we are building up to a major cabinet crisis. Stumbling Ed is going to stumble again. We're going to have a finance minister resign rather than present the budget that the premier wants him to present, right? This was building up to a glorious drama. Uh, if we uh, you know, believe the press accounts, uh, this is what was going to happen on the Tuesday, only Stalmack uh, resigned first. You know, Stalmack fired first like it's some kind of jewel. Stalmack resigned first, which is a, you know, Funny way, <laughs> a funny kind of feud to get involved in in public, but whatever. Stelmach completely stole the spotlight by stepping down as leader. At that point, Ted Morton doesn't have to resign in protest for a budget he cannot in conscience sign off on. Instead, he gets to say, I want to run for the leader, and the convention and practice in our party is to do that, you stepped out of cabinet. So all of a sudden, we don't have what uh, conservatives were worried about, this major confrontation, a major rift, one or more cabinet ministers walking out of cabinet, maybe leaving the party, maybe taking a chance. I mean, you can unfold the drama yourself. That's what we seem to be building up to. And all of a sudden, no. You know, We have a, uh, uh, a premier who resigned because he wanted to, not because he was forced to. And we have a finance minister who wants to run for the leadership of the party. What confrontation? What party split? It's gone. Absolutely magnificent. Um, so, um, you know, whether you think of this as Mr. Magoo or Machiavelli, I worked on that one for a while. I like that one. Okay. Whether you think of this as Mr. Magoo or Machiavelli, it still turned out really well for Ed Stelmach and the Conservatives. No budget showdown, no cabinet revolt, no major defections from the party and a clear field for a new leadership race. Ta-da! You know, who would have thought two months ago, six months ago, that you could have set it up that nicely? 
Now, uh, the conservatives are positioned much better than anybody could have uh, imagined they would be a year ago, but the Raz Sherman episode highlights their challenges. They're not completely out of the woods. Okay, the second thing we have to remind ourselves is that even the Stelmack conservatives uh, were no, by no means a broken political machine that had nowhere to go but fall apart. Uh, last time out, this is the crew that gave a landslide for a bland and colorless mystery leader, uh, and they're by no means finished. I'm, actually, I'm very much struck by the similarity in the public opinion polls if you run them for federal politics and for uh, provincial politics. In both cases, the leading, uh, you know, the government is, is parked in the high 30s for uh, percentage of popular support, and their major challenging party is parked in the mid-20s. There's a spread of 10, 12, 14 percent. They vary a bit over time. At the national level, we have no trouble saying that the Harper Conservatives have positioned themselves beautifully. They're moving toward majority government territory. Uh, an election is pending, but then the Bevota incident came along, and okay, they're probably sliding back down from those lovely figures, but the provincial conservatives aren't sliding down. They're parked, and if anything, moving back up. So if we thought the Harper conservatives were in good territory there, the Stelmat conservatives were in the same territory. they most likely to win and uh, quite likely with the majority. Um, so... Uh, the, uh, the advantage the conservatives have provincially, the Wild Rose Alliance is completely untested. We have no idea how well they can run an election campaign. We have no idea if they can field the full set of credible candidates they need to. They're a largely untested alternative to the conservatives. So all of that was in the conservatives' favor anyway, and it's, uh, uh, it's just gotten better for them more recently. Now, uh, I admit I'm a bit surprised that the public opinion polls have the Wild Rose Alliance holding so steady. I really thought a year ago this was a blip. This was, you know, uh, people, you know, let's go park here and, and, and hold our breath for a while and see if we can't uh, 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 prod the conservatives. I'm quite surprised that it stayed as steady as it has. It really is in the same, you know, uh, plus or minus 2% in public opinion polls now for over a year. Um, I think they're a real factor in politics. I, I think they're going to make a dent in the next election. Okay, the third thing we have to remind ourselves, and I fell into this trap when, uh, uh, when Stel uh, Mac made his announcement and then Morton announced he was seeking the leadership. I said, the front runner has got to be Ted Morton. He came so close last time. He's been a very credible minister. He's uh, proven himself to a lot of conservatives. And then I started thinking about it and saying, well, no, that's absolutely wrong. I think Danielle Smith had it right. Uh, Ted Morton cannot win this leadership race. And the reason he can't is it's not just a lot of his supporters, it's his organizers and activists who have already left the Conservative Party and joined the Wild Rose Alliance. I really think the Wild Rose Alliance right now is the other half of the Conservative Party. I don't think they're drawing you know, non-voters from before into anything. I don't think they're drawing much from the other parties. I think they're drawing from people who used to support the Conservatives. And most of the people who've left the Wild Rose Alliance, left the Conservatives for the Wild Rose Alliance, were the people who supported Ted Morton for leader last time. And now they're not in the Conservative Party. 
Now, um, you know, why don't you come back and take over the party with me? Yeah, but I've already got a party over here. You know, why would I cross back for that purpose? And if they do take advantage of the Conservative Party's ridiculous leadership race rules, assuming, which we don't know yet, but I'm assuming they'll much the same as the stupid rules from last time. If they do have the same stupid rules as last time, then, yeah, you could raid the Conservative Party. You could buy a lot of memberships. You could go in and say, okay, now, who do we want to run against? Who's the worst leader for the Conservatives? Yeah, but if the uh, Wild Rose Alliance does that, it won't be Ted Morton they're doing it for. It'll be somebody else because Morton is the person that can challenge them the most directly. You know, that'd be too much of a good thing to have Morton versus Danielle Smith. Now you're negating your strength, not maximizing it. So um, I, I think the uh, Wild Rose Alliance is going to be a factor, but they're a secondary factor that conservatives are holding very strong. <laughs> okay. Um, in the conservative, since there is a, a something of a race going on, and we have some people announced, I should stick my neck out here a bit. Uh, the people who have now announced that I think we need to take seriously are Ted Morton, although he won't win, uh, Doug Horner, and um, Allison Redford from Calgary. I don't take uh, Doug Griffiths particularly seriously. I mean, he was flirting with the Wild Rose Alliance a year ago. He was flirting with the Alberta Party a month ago, and now he wants to be a leader of the Conservatives. Yeah, I don't think so. But then I would have said much the same thing about Ed Stelmack. You know, I don't think so. Not, not a serious contender, you know, four years ago. And, you know, bear that in mind. That's how good my predictions are. Uh, so uh, at the moment, I have to admit, when I look at the Conservative Party, I keep seeing Alison Redford coming through. Um, I... Uh, I'm not saying anything against Doug Horner. Doug Horner was Minister of Advanced Education while I was on the executive of the uh, Provincial Association of Faculty Associations, so I've dealt with about half a dozen uh, Ministers of Advanced Education. I think Doug Horner is probably the smartest of them, the hardest working. He did the most to get on top of that portfolio. Then he promptly did more damage to advanced education, as I understand it, than any minister in living history. So, but that's a different story. I'll you know, get into that some other time. I think he's a very, a very sharp guy. I think uh, uh, he's got a lot going for him. But I think the problem is he's too clearly Stelmac 2.0. And Stelmac 1.0 didn't work out all that well. I think that's where he'll get his initial strength from. But I think that will limit the strength he's got. Uh, therefore, by elimination, um, Alison Redford from Calgary. And then I keep saying, you've got to be kidding. It's her first term in the legislature. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's quite something, first term in the legislature and minister of justice. Wow. And if you look at her biography, there's a, a fair amount of political experience at various levels in there. But still, first term in the legislature, first uh, few years in Alberta provincial politics, and now here I am making her the front runner. Um, it is one of the strange things about the style of modern politics that uh, uh, very much experience in anything disqualifies you now for office, and inexperience is a tremendous advantage. Um, yeah, got to stop and think about that one. Uh, and uh, just uh, my, my own fantasy, suppose Redford is the front runner for the Conservatives, and just because I say she is doesn't make her so. Uh, suppose that uh, Mason takes the hint and, and steps down as, uh, for the NDP, and then suppose the Liberals pick some, uh, some young woman to lead them. Wouldn't that be the leadership debate, eh? All four would be women. Okay. Um, that, that, that would be a complete turnaround. Uh, uh, not saying it'll happen, but wouldn't it be fun if it did? Okay, the fourth thing we have to keep reminding ourselves about is that the Liberal Party of Alberta hasn't actually disappeared. I mean, 
the way people are talking about it, they're gone, right? There is no liberal party. Ho-hum, forget it. They're onto the trash heap of history. Um, I don't think so. Um, to be sure, they couldn't, uh, they surrendered the spotlight to the Wild Rose Alliance. They've made no gains whatever against a weakened conservative party and a, uh, uh, a weak uh, provincial premier. But at the same time, their strength hasn't fallen either. There's a bedrock of support for the liberals, for the liberal brand in this province that doesn't, uh, doesn't fall much, doesn't rise much either. That's their limitation. But it's a good, strong brand that doesn't fall much. Um, I, I don't think we should write them off yet uh, by any means. They have a chance at the middle of the spectrum there to put together a, a, a new leader, a new team, and put a challenge on from that side. I really... Since the Wild Rose Alliance isn't tested, I'm not ready to say that the Liberals won't still be the official opposition after the next election. They'll have to botch this leadership race before I think that's true. So the Liberal leadership race is, uh, it, it is also important, although they have the massive disadvantage, bluntly, who's paying attention? I mean, all the fun is the Conservative leadership race. They're going to grab the spotlight. They're going to grab the attention. What parties always want coming out of a leadership race is the leadership bounce. They want an interesting uh, leadership race. They want a solid win. They want the party united behind a new leader. And then they want the chance to go in, you know, into an election with all that going for them. And if no one's paying attention because somebody else is having a more exciting race, you squander a good chunk of that. Okay, I've now taken most of the excitement away from you. I've uh, The four things to remember that make most of the fun of the last month vanish. Um, but um, it's a downer, sorry. I must remind you of Jean Chrétien after he became leader of the Liberal Party saying, everybody go take a Valium. Well, you know, uh, maybe that's what I've been so, so far. But I, I don't think that's true at all. I think something very important is about to take place in Alberta politics. And regardless of which party comes out where in the shuffling that's going to result, I think there's an important change going on, and that's the generational shift that you were promised. Um, I'm talking about the twilight of the baby boomers, and I say that with great sadness because I am one. But uh, I think the, the great baby boomer era in Canadian politics is coming to an end. And uh, this, uh, the current situation in Alberta is, I think, the, the beginning of that change or an opportunity for that change. And Alberta's a lovely province to talk about it because... Um, the last time Albertans tossed out a political party and elected a new one, which we hardly ever do in this province, but the last time we managed to do that was 1971 uh, with the Lougheed Conservatives. And the 1970s, I don't need to remind any of you, was a very special decade in Canadian politics. It was, uh, you know, we've never changed so many governments so quickly in Canada as we did at the beginning of the 1970s. It was the Trudeau decade federally, but it was also massive change right across the country. In almost every province in Canada, except Ontario, uh, there was a, a new uh, government elected, and moreover, um, they were parties that, whatever their political stripe, they had. Uh, they were reformist parties committed to a strong government role in, in, uh, in the economy and in society. Uh, Lougheed, Blakeney, Hatfield, Schreyer, Bourassa, and after Bourassa, Levesque, that's quite a lineup. That is a good chunk of the politics of, of the last 40 years in, in, in a single lineup. Um, this was the decade and the sort of politicians that built the Canada that most of us have taken for granted. 
And I would suggest the label to put on that is the baby boomers arrived. That was the, the, the 1970s was the decade that politics shifted and the baby boomers started taking an active interest in politics and politicians started taking an active interest in the baby boomers. In a sense, it's a little bit early. The official definition of baby boomers usually is born in 1946. First one born January 1st, 1946. So in 1971, the first baby boomers were 25 years old. And, you know, that's, that, that's still just the, the beginning edge rather than the whole wave arriving. But there was, you know, there were five years of baby boomers building up. There were more coming behind them. I think we can still explain that decade as the arrival of the baby boomers and the, the redefinition of politics in their image. Now, I don't want to make – you can't – you know, we talk about these generations. You can't make them too monolithic. I mean, of course, Peter Lougheed wasn't a baby boomer. When he became premier of the province, he was an ancient fossilized 43. And the cutting edge of the baby boomers then were a young, dynamic 25. So, you know, if you make the generational split too tight, you uh, – I think you miss some of the point. But I do think the politics of that decade – uh, was structured around the new, uh, a new generation arriving and a new set of expectations and a new set of political leaders that could find those dreams and aspirations and uh, turn the page in Canadian politics, uh, not just in terms of who was in office, but in terms of uh, what they thought they were in office to accomplish and what they thought they should do to bring it about. That vision is to, uh, the vision they represent took a real beating in the 1990s, and it's clearly in some kind of eclipse today, but it defined a political generation. It set the tone for, for Canadian politics for, I would argue, four decades, which is quite a while. And so, therefore, it's utterly poetic that this change should be coming. Number one, that I should be able to talk about it so positively in 2011, and number two, that we're talking about Alberta. Um, Again, worked out, out the math. Um, if by standard definition the first baby boomer was born on January 1st, 1946, then that same person turned 65 on January 1st, 2011. <laughs> it's wonderful. I mean, you could not. Uh, I wondered if the uh, CBC started running these things about the great pension crunch coming. Let's not think about it. It's depressing. But uh, the CBC started running those stories in January. And at first I was saying to myself, what? Where did that come from? Why is it more of a problem than it was six months ago? And I finally worked out that's the reason. The baby boomers have arrived. That huge seething mass is about to go over that particular cliff for us. And, uh, and therefore, it's more of a problem than it was before. It's a nice symbolic period to take it. Now, I know 65 isn't mandatory retirement. It's a little bit of a traditional number rather than the real bite it used to have. But it's still worth mentioning. That's, that's quite something. Um, now, the story of the last 40 years, I think, is the story of the baby boomers. And I've always, uh, uh, Doug Olram wrote a, a terrific book on, the, on that generation, and the title is just splendid, Born at the Right Time. And boy, were we. We were the pampered generation. We haven't had a war. We haven't had a major depression. We've had uh, economic prosperity through almost all of our, of our adulthood. Um, our era coincided with a major uh, protracted economic boom and then all kinds of massive scientific progress. So we leave one heck of a legacy. We leave a plundered planet. We leave massive social programs we can't afford. We leave behind a mountain of debt. But hey, what a ride. Eh? Was that ever fun? Uh, they, the, I think the point is, though, that generation's time is coming to an end. In the 1970s, we took center stage. I think now we're starting to leave it. Um, now, of course, we can't make the parallel too rigid. History never simply repeats itself, although sometimes it echoes. 
The 1970s was a time of growth and prosperity. The emerging baby boomers dramatically outnumbered the generation they were replacing in positions of power and authority. Neither of those is true today. These are much more precarious times economically. I mean, just watch the last three or four years have proven that. And watching the American, okay, we won't think about the U.S. economy and where it's going in the next five or ten years. Okay, these are not as jolly times as the 1970s were economically. And the baby boomers, although they're ceding the stage politically to another generation, aren't going away thanks to medical science. They're going to be around for longer than ever. And that's a, uh, it's going to be a huge public policy challenge, one of the biggest. I think the argument about intergenerational fairness and equity is going to be a huge challenge for the, the next 15 or 20 years. Um, but uh, and all the more so because we're going to be thinking in terms of a zero-sum game rather than in terms of growth. That's going to make it even more bitter. So it's a mistake to think that we simply push the button and, hey, we get the 1970s over again. Uh, it's not going to be like that. All I'm talking about is a major shift and a change in the style and assumptions that go along with it. Okay, the most obvious marker of, uh, of this shift is the age of our political leaders. Um, Danielle Smith is 39. I looked it up just before I came here. Okay. Um, Allison Redford is 45. Doug Griffiths is 38. I counted him out for other purposes, but I need him for the age thing, so I'll bring him back in. This makes them all Generation Xers, if you follow that particular vocabulary for talking about the generational cycles. Uh, logically, then, I'm obliged to count out Ted Morton, who's a creaky old 61, and Doug Horner is 50. That means they, again, beautiful. You could not set this up nicer. They bracket the baby boomers. Doug Horner's right at the bottom. Ted Morton's right toward the top. It's lovely. I couldn't have scripted this better if I'd worked on it. Uh, but obviously, there's more to it than just the, whenever a party changes leaders, it tends to get somebody younger, duh, you know. If that's all you've got, you've got nothing. I think there's a lot more going on than that. Part of the more is technology. And again, I, since I've been given my countdown, I can give you nothing but cliches, but it's uh, all I've got anyway. So um, the, uh, the, the time before the 1970s was the age of radio. That was the most important medium of communication. The 1970s ushered in the age of television as the primary political medium. The first televised leaders debate, the one we've taken for granted ever since, was 1968 at the federal level. That was the beginning of something we now think defines the way political contests are carried on. It's, you know, it's that recent a thing. Obviously, this next generation coming in, this is the age of the Internet and the social media. Um, and things are going to change. Uh, Obama's election was in part due to YouTube. I think, I, you know, okay, in part. Yeah. But YouTube was a part of the Obama campaign in a way that no one had been able to use YouTube before. And, of course, as we all know in, the, uh, in that city to the north and in Calgary, the, the new mayor there is widely held to be a product of, uh, um, of Twitter and Facebook, and that's what he utilized to, to pull out a surprise win there. That's something of a new face of politics, just as the age of television replaced the older age of radio. Um, the bottom edge of the boomers are turning 50. This is my own personal, uh, my own personal observation, but I will uh, project it onto all of you. It's during the 50s that large chunks of the world stop making sense. 
and that technology stops being something to embrace and starts becoming something to be annoyed about. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, up until the 50s, things come along, oh, goody, I want one. Where are they on sale? Uh, once you're in your 50s, it's, nah, don't think so, never saw the point. Well, uh, the baby boomers are now into that phase of life as these, this new thing breaks on the stage. So I can throw the terms around, right? I can say YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, you know. Can I use them? Ah, uh, no, okay. But I know what they, sort of vaguely what they are. Now, um, so I think this broader political turmoil we're going through is setting the stage for a dramatic change. It's setting the stage for a new set of leaders. The new set of leaders have the opportunity to use a new kind of technology and therefore to address a different set of voters in a different way. And I'm just expecting things to change. I don't know exactly how they're going to change. I'm part of the group shuffling off the stage. Good luck to the rest of you. But uh, I expect to spend a lot of the next few years being bewildered. But I think this is the possibility that these two leadership races simultaneously at the provincial level uh, leave for us. Now, one last warning. I'm not sure we'll particularly like the policy outcomes. This is a replay of 1970 only in the sense that the torch is being passed from one generation to the other, not in the sense that they're going to copy our policy solutions. The magic wand of the 1970s, I'm sure you all remember it, was the Crown Corporation. That was a way for governments to get heavily involved in the economy and social development and employment. It was a mechanism of control that was used by every government, left, right, and center, right across the entire country. It is now passe. We're now privatizing and winding them down as fast as we can. Um, that's not going to be, you know, that's not the revival we're going to see. If there is a magic wand these days, I'm afraid of something more like uh, privatization or, or downsizing. That's more the direction politics is going to go. So as the ancient Chinese curse had it, may you live in interesting times. We certainly do. Thank you. Thank you.